0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, and to celebrate this season, we're taking a break from the news with an hour of stories starring animals, including a mother rabbit determined to care for her young.
1: I mean, she was not going to let anything stop her, and I think people think of rabbits as these timid little shivering animals, but they're anything but. These things know what they're doing, and this mother wanted to get to her babies, and by God, she did. She just needed a little help.
2: And I'm Jenny Doring. Also, a scientist shares her close encounter with wildlife during Alaskan snowstorm. I was driving to this flight center with the two bald eagles in my
3: backseat, which was cool enough, but I kept having to get out of the car and chink the ice off my windshield
4: wipers. And I look up, and there's a wolf at the edge of the woods just looking at me. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill with bunnies and eagles and wolves.
0: Oh, my. Animal storytelling this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. I'm Jenny
4: Doring, And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. As you guys know, for these couple of weeks around the holidays and the winter solstice, we like to take a little
2: break from the news and share some storytelling on the show. Yes, and for today's show, we've got some of our favorite storytellers and guests to share some of their animal stories with us. Bobby, I think you talked with Julie Zikafus. I mean, thanks to her, I'm noticing blue jays everywhere these days.
0: Yeah, me too. She told us about a baby blue jay that she raised and released into the wild. She wrote and illustrated a beautiful book about Jemima, that baby blue jay. And when I talked with her, I learned that she's had some really amazing experiences with all kinds of animals in her work as a wildlife rehabilitator. So take a listen. She's really got a
1: soft spot, especially for animals that a lot of us might think of as pests. I have a special affection for woodchucks. Woodchucks are just... (laughs) extraordinary animals. And I think that only those of us who've come to know them personally might realize this. I think a lot of people think of them as just big garden eaters and diggers and things like that. But um, I had a friend who's now passed on. His name was Tom Ross, and he lived in the Amish country of Ohio. And he shared this story with me. In the early 1970s, Tom had an office, he was an architect, and it was in a home that was completely surrounded by commercial development, strip malls and and stores and that kind of thing. And uh, a woodchuck somehow hung on and lived in the hedge in the front of the building and had a burrow down there, and it grazed out on the lawn. And one day, Tom received notice that the building was going to be demolished. And he knew that the woodchuck would be killed when the lot was bulldozed. So he was afraid what would become of it. Mm. So he moved his office. All the architects got their stuff out, and they were loading up their cars with all their stuff. And Tom had brought a wooden cage from home, and he was intending to live trap this woodchuck and then move it to safety. And he wrote me a letter about this. He said... When we had finished loading the car, I walked around the front to try to spot the woodchuck's hole. Parting the yews planted around the foundation, I was shocked to see the woodchuck sitting there, looking up at me. He was not timid and didn't run. It was almost as if he'd been expecting me. As I stood transfixed, he came to the front of the bushes and stood up with his front paws on my leg like a dog. I reached down and scratched the top of his head, then slowly backed up and started to the back of the house to get the cage. At this, he followed me around the house, walked of his own volition straight into the cage, and I closed the gate. We then placed the cage in the car, drove out to the country where I keep my bees, and released him. The woodchuck set up housekeeping there, and I saw him frequently the rest of the summer.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So the woodchuck knew? I mean, how did the woodchuck know what was going to happen and and that this was somebody who could help him?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there is a mechanism by which the woodchuck knew. I think that he was seeing what was going on. He saw the people moving out. But he also saw the pictures in Tom's mind of the demolishing of the house. He sensed the concern. He received the message that something bad was about to happen to his home. And I think he did what made sense to him, which was to let the person help him. Hmm.
0: And uh, so I understand that you have a,
1: another story for us about people helping animals. Well, I do. And again, I'm going to talk about a garden pest, a, a cottontail rabbit, which is not something you want in your garden. No. But uh, this one spring, I was rototilling my garden, and I noticed a little tiny tuft of rabbit fur next to a bale of straw. And I knew what that meant. Um, I put my finger down through the straw and into the earth, and there was a little fur-lined bowl there, and there were some warm, slippery, sleek baby rabbits in there. Mm. The mother rabbit pulls fur out of her belly and makes a beautiful blanket that she pulls over the babies when she has to leave them. And uh, so there they were. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to stop all operations in here right now. So I put the blanket back over them. And that night, there was supposed to be a violent thunderstorm. So I put a wheelbarrow upside down elevated by a couple of bricks so that the rabbit could crawl under it, but, you know, nothing else could get to them. So, sure enough, when I went to check them in the morning, they were warm and dry under there, and obviously the rabbit had crawled in in the night to nurse them. That's what rabbits do. They nurse their babies all night, and then they leave them all day. Hmm. So I went ahead and planted the peas and the lettuce, and I left the nest with the wheelbarrow over it um, alone, and I checked on the little rabbit kits every couple of days to make sure they were still all right. And one day I forgot, and I closed the garden door, and she had been just coming in and out of the open door of the fencing, and she had chewed a five-inch hole in the mesh uh, to get through to her baby, so nothing was going to stop her. Mm. Anyway, the babies made it fine. They left. Everything was great. And I was very, very glad that I discovered that nest and didn't rototill it up. So Mm. then I got to thinking about back to the mid-1970s when I was going to uh, a lot of old-time music festivals, and there was this one called Brandywine in Pennsylvania, and it was a fabulous time. And what they would do was, every summer, they would mow this hay field, and that would be pressed into service as a parking lot. And then people also would cast their tents in the lot. So I had just gotten there and I was walking toward the sound of the fiddles and the banjos and I was all excited and I had my big gypsy skirt on and my felt hat and I saw a little tuft of rabbit fur in the hay. And I thought, oh boy. So I felt down through the hay that had been cut and sure enough, there were these pink naked baby rabbits there in a nest. And I looked to the left, and there was a tent, and to the right, there was another tent, and then behind me were cars. It was overrun by people. So I thought, ah, what do I do? This is a four-day festival. I can't take the rabbits. I've got to make it so that the mother can get to them, but nobody will step on them or drive over them. So I found some wooden stakes and some twine and some paper and I cordoned off the nest and I made a sign that said, rabbit nest, please keep away. (laughs) So it was just this little triangle, this little oasis for these babies. And every morning I came back to check on the baby rabbits. And each time they were warm and dry and their bellies were round and full. And I realized that this mother rabbit had made her way through enemy lines at night, past the tents and the cars and the people playing in the parking lot to nurse her young. And she had made it happen.
0: Hmm.
1: So at the end of the four-day festival, everybody packed up their tents and left, and the young rabbits were still alive and warm and waiting for their mother.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's a beautiful story. There's nothing like the determination of a mother, you know?
1: Exactly. I mean, she was not going to let anything stop her. And I think people think of rabbits as these timid little shivering animals, but they're anything but. This mother wanted to get to her babies, and by God, she did. Mm -hmm. She just needed a little help.
0: Yeah. And uh, I understand you have one more story for us, also about rabbits.
1: I do. And again, it's a wonderful story, but it's not mine. This is a, a friend of mine who, like Tom Ross's, also passed away. She was an incredible woman named Christine Carpenter. And she had wild rabbits come up to her and ask for help. It started with one rabbit. She and her husband saw a rabbit lying by a cherry tree in their yard. This was in Ohio. And they went over and looked at it, figuring it was dying, and it was certainly in bad shape. There's a parasite that rabbits get, and it's called a warble fly. It lays its egg under the skin of the rabbit, and then the larva grows up as a parasite and makes a big knot on the skin of the rabbit. A really badly afflicted rabbit kind of looks like a sack of marbles. Mm. So this poor rabbit was covered with warble fly larvae and knots. They saw The warbles, they had seen them on tame rabbits and knew what to do. So they put on gloves and they got a needle-nose pliers and a scissors and they removed all the warble larvae from this animal. It allowed them to do it. It didn't struggle. They brought it into the house, they gave it some water and some food, and they put it in the bathtub overnight. And they were pretty sure it would be dead in the morning. But in the morning, it was ricocheting around the bathtub. (laughs) And they opened the bathroom door and the door to the outside and the rabbit rocketed out into the yard and was clearly still fine. And one might presume (laughs) grateful. So they thought, well, that was cool. But then what happened was two more rabbits presented themselves to Christine. They came up to her and they too had bad warbles. And again, Christine and her husband gloved up and put on long sleeves and, you know, held the rabbits, which struggled a little as a wild rabbit would, but they allowed themselves to be picked up and they allowed the operation to be done. And they went out and prospered after that.
0: You know, Julie, it reminds me of your story of the woodchuck. You know, the woodchuck somehow knew that this guy was going to gonna help him and, and the rabbits just somehow knew that, uh, you know, there was a friend here that could help him out. It's really nice to think of.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, lots of people are probably familiar with the tale of Androcles and the lion, where a wild lion allowed Androcles to remove a thorn from its paw. So clearly this is an old archetype. This is something that people have been doing with animals for many, many, many centuries. And I think it's something that, that we need to look for in everyday life and, and look for ways to stop and help animals. It's a different way to look at the natural world and, and a beautiful way, really.
0: Julie Zikafus is a part time wildlife rehabilitator, artist, and author of several books, including Saving Jemima Life in Love with a Hard Luck Jay. Julie, thank you so much for sharing all of these wonderful stories with us.
1: Well, thank you, Bobby. It's such an honor to be on Living on Earth. Thank you so much.
4: Coming up, a trip to the Galapagos, and a woman's quest to swim with marine iguanas. We'll have more animal stories for you just ahead on Living on Earth. Living on Earth's year-end fundraiser is underway. Our goal is
2: 600 new or renewing donors before year-end. Make your gift today. Go to LOE.org and click Donate. And thank you.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom.
4: I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. We continue our holiday special now with some more
2: animal stories. Jenny, what do you have for us? Yeah, I talked with Tiara Curry. She's a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. And today she mostly has a desk job. She works towards getting legal protections for endangered species, plants, and animals. But she started by telling me about a close encounter that she had uh, a while back while working with animals in Alaska.
3: I want to go back to about a decade ago when I lived in Alaska, I was volunteering at a wildlife rehabilitation center that focused on birds. And because Alaska is such a wild place, we would get bald eagles in regularly. So I got to work with them pretty much on a daily basis. And just getting to know so many different bald eagles, I came to understand that they even looked different and they had different personalities. And it kind of changed the way that I think about wildlife because it just made me realize that we think of wild animals as like all the ones in a group being the same, but they're all different. They have their lives and their personalities and, you know, their schedules. And so at the clinic, some of the bald eagles were very shy and they would like never interact with us. And some of them were really mad to be there and they just like (laughs) wanted to attack us. And some of them were just very kind and cooperative. And one of the amazing experiences that I had at that clinic is after the birds were feeling better, they went out to a flight center to work up their strength and learn to fly again before they were released into the wild. And so one winter morning, it was my job to take two bald eagles in really large dog kennels out to this flight center. And there happened to just be a huge blizzard that day. And In Anchorage, when there's a blizzard, your life doesn't shut down. You just keep going. And so you just go out on the road and try to make a lane and (laughs) hope for the best. And so I was driving to this flight center with the two bald eagles in my backseat, which was cool enough. But I kept having to get out of the car and chink the ice off my windshield wipers. And because this was my first winter in Alaska, I didn't even really have an ice scraper. So I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was using a credit card. <laughs> I'm just like stuck there with my head down. It's pouring snow. I'm sure my hair is freezing. And, and I look up and there's a wolf at the edge of the woods just looking at me. And I stared back at it and it was just this moment where I was hyper aware of being a human. I'm here at this moment on a Tuesday morning outside Anchorage, and this wolf is here too. And we just stared at each other and shared this moment. And we were both dealing with the snow. It was having trouble walking. It kept postholing and like having to push against the snow with its chest. And we were both surprised by the encounter. And then We both just went on about our schedules after that moment. But it's a moment that I'll I'll just never forget.
0: Mm.
2: Was that the first time that you had seen a wolf?
3: You know, I'd seen wolves in Denali on a tour bus with lots of other people. We saw like 12 wolves in one day at the very end of fall when all wow. the animals are active and trying to put on weight for the winter. And I'd seen them at a distance in Yellowstone. But to just run into one in the course of the morning and have this moment with it, just me and the wolf in this terrible weather, it was it was amazing.
2: So Tiara, I'm sure your job at the Center for Biological Diversity has brought you some pretty neat wildlife encounter stories. Would you like to share some of those with us? I would.
3: One of the best parts about my job, the most interesting parts for sure, I work on endangered species around the whole country, but at the policy level. So I'm usually just like behind my desk working on policy documents. But because of this, I work on all kinds of species across the country, from crayfish to butterflies to the Humboldt martens, just whatever is endangered and needs help if it's a plant or an animal And people contact me regularly when they have an experience with one of these animals. Like, if someone has a monarch butterfly that they've watched grow from a caterpillar and it isn't doing what they think it should be doing, they contact me for advice that ranges from my monarch lacks self confidence to like it's the wrong color or should I help it out of its shell? Or one time somebody found me because their dog was down in the creek and came back with a blue crayfish attached to its lip. And they had heard on the news that that there was this endangered blue crayfish. And so they wanted to see if their crayfish that their dog brought home was endangered and what they should do about it. I sent the pictures to crayfish researchers in that state, and it actually was a species that we had petitioned for protection for, and this ended up being a new location for it. But in terms of the immediate, I told them just to put it back in the creek, but then the researcher was really glad to have the information about a new population of it. Um, Kind of the most touching of these stories... One time there was a fairy shrimp in Florida called the Florida fairy shrimp, and we petitioned for protection for it. And the Fish and Wildlife Service said that it was extinct. And so that was hard. And we put out a press release about the Florida fairy shrimp being gone. And then this woman, a couple months later, the roads around her house flooded, and she found a bunch of fairy shrimp in the road. And she thought that maybe these fairy shrimp were the Florida fairy shrimp, and Mm. she didn't know what to do. So... She contacted me and I told her to contact somebody local, you know, to see what they were. And she just went out of her way. She contacted the State Wildlife Commission, a local marine lab. Upon their advice, she went and bought a tank and like food to feed them. She just wanted so desperately to help these fairy shrimp. And she felt so much responsibility because beyond compassion for the individual animals, she was afraid they were going to get run over or that vector control was going to spray for mosquitoes and that it would kill them she felt responsibility for the fate of the entire species. What if she had found this animal that was just declared extinct? And for days it took over her life. She dropped like everything she was doing to try to take care of these fairy shrimp to see if she could save the species. And I was just so touched and I felt so helpless, but also so grateful to her, like faced with this urgency and feeling the meaningfulness of the moment. And I think that like, a lot of people, they hear about the extinction crisis and they want to help and they want to be a good human being and do the right thing. And then they encounter this really rare animal that could be the last of its
2: kind and they don't know what to do. And somehow they find me. So Tira, were those fairy shrimp that this woman spent three days of her life agonizing over, were they ultimately, you know, this, this extinct species?
3: No, they ended up being the common species of fairy shrimp in that area, but they could have been. So it's really important that when people do have these encounters, they report it to someone who could help save them because it's entirely possible that it's just something that researchers didn't find and that, and that you could find it. And most of the time the answer is just like leave the animal where it is. it'll it'll be fine. but it's an honor for me to get to talk to people who are having these intense experiences. But sometimes, it's not so good. Sometimes people just kidnap stuff that they shouldn't kidnap. What did they do? Well, one time I got an email that was titled, My Pika Won't Poop. <laughs> Pikas are little rabbit-like animals that live on talus slopes in the West, and they squeak. Eek! Like if you've ever been hiking in the High Mountain West and you hear a little squeak, it's probably a pika. Eek! But anyway, I got this email one day called, My Pika Won't Poop, and I just think, oh no. <laughs> and I God. opened it, and someone had brought home a pika. It hadn't eaten or pooped for days, and they they didn't know what to do. And so, of course, I told them, take the pika back.
2: Yeah, I really hope they did. I mean, that can't be good for the pika. So, Tiara, if someone at home listening to this does find some critter that they think maybe is an endangered species or, you know, we thought it was extinct, what would you recommend that they do? In
3: general, just take a picture. Take a bunch of pictures of it. Don't disturb it. Um, If it is in danger of getting run over or getting sprayed by vector control, like those were kind of extenuating circumstances for the fairy shrimp. Mostly just take the picture so that you can contact the researcher or contact me and I can find the researcher to, to find out what it is. Most of the time, unless an animal is hurt, even if it is hurt, probably don't pick it up. Just contact
2: somebody who has the skills to go pick it up. Well, thank you so much for sharing these wonderful stories, Tiara.
3: Thanks, Jenny. Take care.
2: So Ainsley, I know from hearing your stories around the office that you actually lived in Ecuador for a while and you spent some time in the Galapagos uh, around all those strange and wonderful animals.
4: Yeah, it was definitely one of the coolest experiences of my life.
2: Oh, man, I'm
0: so jealous. The Galapagos is really high on my list of places I'd love to visit. You
4: definitely should if you ever get the chance. But in the meantime, we have a story from writer Jennifer
5: Younghans that will take you to the Galapagos at least for a few minutes. For as long as I can remember, I've dreamed of traveling to the Galapagos Islands to free dive with the ancient marine iguanas and roam the archipelago as Darwin did as he unraveled our story of evolution. He found little value in the marine iguana, insulting their physical appearance, intelligence, and behavior. But I fell in love with them when I saw a photo in National Geographic of this wave of marine iguanas swimming underwater. I long to be right there among them, these gentle giants that often look like statues on land, armored in scales with faces that resemble a gentler cousin of Tyrannosaurus rex, and snaggle-toothed spines that jut from head to tail, eyes that stare and large claws at the end of hands that look strangely like our own. Then in 2017, I disembarked a small plane from Ecuador and stepped into the remote wilderness of my dreams. In July, the temperature is cooler, the seas are rougher, and the winds are stronger. But the life cycles of the natural world are vigorous and alive. Here, the animals are abundant and unafraid. In one startling panoramic view, Blue-footed boobies dive like torpedoes into turquoise water. Sea lion pups with giant dark globes for eyes and sand all over their faces follow us as they wait for their mothers to return with food. And colossal numbers of my beloved marine iguanas bask in the sun to warm themselves, piled in tangles of arms and legs and salt-crusted faces. At night, when we anchor at sea, sea lions jump up to rest and sleep on the stern of our boat, and we wait for black-tipped sharks to appear just below the surface, likely looking to score an easy meal, accustomed to the bycatch fishing boat's dump. I gasp when they appear. Several have come, and we peer overboard, the mystery of how big the next one will be, or how close it will come, or from which direction electrifies my senses. In their presence, Hollywood's characterization of these beings as man-eating predators crumbles, and I feel an undeniable resurrection of a connection once lost. Out here in the wilderness, under the celestial skies, in these moments of reverence, I am closer to the truth than I've ever been. I don't wonder about the future or question my existence. Somehow, out here, where the planet pulses according to its natural rhythms, it all makes sense. We take a long hike up rocky terrain to where blue-footed boobies have gathered to mate and raise their young. White puffs of down stretch their gaping beaks upward from beneath their mother's wing. And by the magic of serendipity, we witness the flamboyant courtship dance and the rarely seen mating of these birds. But it's a tiny pufferfish that touches me most. Several swim up to me as I snorkel, but one stays. She fans her fins, hovering right in front of me, observing me as intently as I observe her. We stay like this, face to face, for several minutes. I've never felt so acknowledged or seen. In that moment, the boundary between species blurs. We are two beings who share this planet in a moment of uninterrupted recognition. As different as we look, transcending millions of years of evolution, we come from the same origin. In fact, we share strikingly similar genomes with pufferfish, and something inside me innately knows it. I never did swim with the marine iguanas as I've dreamed of. They spent most of their time basking on land, even though they depend on the algae clinging to rocks in the sea. But my time here has given me something greater. Wandering among these wild animals at every turn, I attune to how life unfolds and exists when we are the visitor. It's illuminated what the world once was and the wildness that we are still able to preserve and protect.
4: Well, first of all, thank you, Jennifer. I love to hear that. I have to say, I was extremely excited to get to speak to you because coincidentally, I spent some time in the Galapagos Islands, in fact, during July of 2017. So we must have been there overlapping at the same time. Oh, my goodness. I wonder if we crossed paths. Well, I was just thinking, I was like, what are the chances... I was very fortunate that I got to spend some time with each of the animals that you wrote here, except for maybe the pufferfish. But I have to say, I love that you have an affection for the marine iguanas, because I do too, oh. even though they are, like you said, you know, a little bit prehistoric, a little bit uh, salt-crusted, maybe not the most captivating at first sight.
5: I almost think they are. I tend to gravitate towards the underdog always. <laughs> and so, when people see these creatures and they they think it's ugly or they don't think it's worthy of the attention for me, I see beyond all of that immediately and i I know that there's a being in there a soul just like mine i mm-hmm. I love them so much.
4: <laughs> I also loved hearing you talk about the sea lions who would jump up to rest near the stern of the boat. I didn't spend that much time on boats unless I was traveling between islands. But right in front of the school that I was attending was the beach, and they would all just come pop up there and hang out with us there.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing because you, you are always reminded of the rules to keep your distance from the animals and stay away and don't touch them and and don't encourage them but at the same time you often find yourselves having to move away quickly because they're they're following after you or or the sea lions are coming up and and touching their noses to yours as you are snorkeling. Or <laughs> I i was standing next to this whale skeleton that we had stumbled upon on a beach. And my daughter was taking pictures of me. And all of a sudden, I felt this thing on my back. And it was one of the mockingbirds that had... Flew onto my bathing suit, crawled up my back, and stood <laughs> on my head while my wow. daughter was taking photos, and it was wild because <laughs> you know, literally it, wild. <laughs> literally wild. We are used to seeing animals in zoos, in aquariums, and on television, but but that's more. You see the shell of an animal when you are mm. on the Galapagos. You are witnessing this entirety of this being and it's in its natural place. Mm -hmm. You can sit and stay among them and observe this kind of life and we just, we rarely have the opportunity to do that. So it's, it is wildly magical.
4: Writer Jennifer Young-Hans lives in Sacramento,
5: California. Jennifer, thank you so
4: much for sharing your story with us.
5: Thank you so much, Ainsley. It's been a pleasure to be here.
2: I, I just love that idea of being truly seen by, of all things, a pufferfish. Yeah, well, I was once
0: truly seen by a barracuda while
2: snorkeling, but it wasn't nearly as
0: pleasant. Yeesh, Bobby, what happened? Well, I was in the Florida Keys, and I was snorkeling, and I had my head down, like looking down for some reason. Um, And then something made me pick my head up, and right in front of me, was the biggest barracuda I've ever seen in my life. And they're almost as big as I am. They have teeth like the size of my index finger. And I don't mind telling you guys, it scared the pants off me, although I was in a bathing suit, so I guess I wasn't really wearing pants. But in any case, it was really frightening. (laughs) Well, we're
4: glad you made it out alive, Bobby. I did. I did. Thank you.
2: Coming up, we'll continue our animal storytelling special with Native American tales that inspire respect between humans and animals. That's
1: just ahead here on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. We
4: wanted to tell you about one of our sponsors, you. Support from our listeners is key to helping us continue providing detailed environmental news and analysis. Go to LOE.org and click donate to learn more. And
2: thank you. We're back with Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. I'm Ainsie O'Neill. And I'm Bobby
0: Bascom. Many Native American communities belong to a clan which identifies with an animal. There are bear, deer, and loon clans, to name a few. And those animals are frequently featured in traditional stories. So to hear some of them, I called up Joe Bruchak. He's a storyteller and musician with the Noegan Abenaki tribe of Vermont and upstate New York. And Joe carves and plays traditional flutes. (laughs) Thank <laughs>
1: you.
6: We say that the flute came to be when a woodpecker made holes in the hollow branch of a tree that was broken off at the end and the wind blew over it and created that first flute music. So when we play the flute, we try to keep in mind it's a gift of the trees and the wind and the birds. A flute could be played for pleasure or to keep yourself from feeling lonely. But also, one of the very cool ways that the flute was used is that if a young man fell in love with a young woman, he would compose a song on the flute and play it for her. And if she accepted it and they became married, she would then write words or compose words for it, and it would become the lullaby sung to their children, not with a flute, but with a rattle.
0: Hmm. it's beautiful. Well, I hope to hear some more of your flute music a little later in this segment. But first, can you get us started with a story? I understand you're going to tell us a, a traditional story about dogs.
6: That's right. They say that long ago, the one we call Gluskomba, the first one in the shape of a human being, was walking around. This was the time before the people came to be on this land. Now, one of the jobs Gluskomba had been given by the creator was to make things better for those humans when they got here. And so he thought, I wonder what the animals will do when they see a human being for the first time. I'd better ask them. And so Gluskomba called together a great council of all the animal people. And then, as he stood before them, he said, I want each of you to come up, and when I say the word for human being, tell me what you will do. Now the first one to step forward was the bear. In those days, bear was so large, he was taller than the tallest trees. His mouth was so huge, it could swallow an entire wigwam. And when Kluskomba said the word Alnoba, which means human being, the bear said, I will swallow every human being that I see." Uh, Gluskomba thought about that. He thought to himself, I do not think human beings will enjoy being swallowed by bears. I'd better do something. And so he decided to use one of the powers given him by the creator, the power to change things, a power that we human beings also have and often misuse. Gluskomba said to the bear, You have some burrs caught in your fur. Let me comb them out with my fingers. And so the bear sat down in front of him. And Gluscomba began to run his fingers along the bear's back, and as he did so, combing out those burrs, he also made the bear get smaller and smaller until the bear was the size that bears are to this day. And when Gluscomba said to him, and now what will you do when you see a human being, that bear looked at itself and said, mm, I will run away, which is what bears usually do to this day. Now the next one to come forward was the one we call Moose, uh, the big moose. Moose, by the way, is one of our Abenaki words. It means the strange one. And that moose back then was really strange. It was so large that its antlers were bigger than the biggest pines. They were sharper than the sharpest spears. And when Glouskomba said the word Ba, that moose said, I will spear every human being I see, spear them on my horns, and throw them over the treetops, and stomp them with my hoofs until they're flat as your hand. And, uh... Again, Gluscomba thought, I do not believe human beings will will feel much pleasure at being speared and flattened by moose. I'd better do something. So he said to that moose, uh, Nidonba, my friend, you appear to be very strong. Let us have a contest. I will hold up my hands, and you will try to push me backward. The moose agreed. It leaned forward, putting its nose in one of Gluscomba's hands, its huge horns in the other, and began to push and push, but Gluscomba did not move. And that moose's horns got smaller and rounder, and the moose itself got very, very, very much smaller than it was before, and also its nose got all smushed in. And the moose looked at itself. When Gluscomba said, and now what will you do when you see a human being? The moose said, mm, I will run away. No one after another. Gluscomba talked. Too many animals, there's almost probably one a separate story, but some of them were no danger at all. For example, the rabbit uh, said, When I see a human being, I will run around in circles foolishly and be terrified, which is what rabbit does to this day. <laughs> Little mice, they said, We will sneak into their houses and eat their food. And Gluscomba said, Well, that's not going to hurt them. You can do that. But finally, just one animal was remaining. It sat there in front of him, wagging its tail. It was, of course, Dog. And Gomba said to Dog, "Uh, Nidomba, my friend, are you going to do something to harm the human beings when they arrive here? And the dog shook its head and said, No, I've been waiting for the human beings to come. I want to be their best, best friend. I want to play with their children. I want to go hunting with them. I want to live at their houses with them and share their food and even climb in bed with them when they are not looking. I want to be their best, 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 best friend. And Kluscomba looked at that dog, and he saw the dog's heart was good. He said, Nindomba, my friend, you will be the best friend that human beings will ever have, a better friend than some of them deserve. And so we will know you by this name, Alamos, the one who walks beside us. And so it is that to this day, it is the dog who walks beside us, our best, best friend.
0: Hmm, that's a lovely story. You know... I just love dogs. It, uh, it always seems um, that they're better than we deserve in some sense. You know, all they want is some food, a little pat on the head, and they're always there to greet you and always happy with a wagging tail. I mean, what's not to love about a dog?
6: <laughs> yeah, the dog is a very special being. And, you know, we say that we learn from every animal that each one has something to teach us. For example, the ancestor of the dog is the wolf. We say that human beings learn from the wolf such things as the fact that all of us in our community, like all the wolves in their pack, should care for all the children, or that we should be able to sing together and make music just as the wolves do.
0: Well, Joe, would you play us another uh, song here on your flute? I understand you brought along a double flute with you.
6: Yes, I'd be happy to do so.
0: Do you have any other um, stories of uh, animals helping people that seems to be a theme here?
6: Well, I think one of the good ones to tell is a story about the bears and a hunter who was not doing the right thing. And this is uh, the version that would be closest to the Seneca version as it was uh, collected by Arthur Parker, who was an ethnologist of the early 20th century and of himself of Seneca origin. The story is that there was a hunter who had to care for his nephew because the boy's parents had died. That hunter grew tired of caring for his nephew and said, Huh, today I think I will get rid of this useless boy. So he called his nephew. My nephew, come with me. I'm going hunting and you can come along. That little boy was so happy. His uncle had never taken him hunting before. He was thrilled, but as they walked out of the village, he noticed two strange things. The first was they were headed in the direction of the winterland, the north and it was said that one should not hunt in that direction. The other strange thing was that the hunter did not bring along his dog that was always with him when he hunted. They walked deep, deep towards the north in that forest until they came to a clearing. On the other side of that clearing was a hill, and there was a cave opening, a mouth of a cave in the base of that hill. The hunter said, Crawl in there. There are animals. Chase them out to me. So he crawled into that cave deeper and deeper till he came to the end of it, and there were no animals there. He turned around, sorry that he was disappointing his uncle, and he saw that circle of light that was the mouth of the cave suddenly disappear. It all was dark. He crawled forward and discovered a big stone had been wedged into the mouth of the cave, trapping him there, and he realized then his uncle had wanted to get rid of him. He felt great sorrow then. Not so much for himself, as for his uncle, whose mind was obviously not right, for who in their right mind would do this to an innocent child? And then he began to remember something, how his parents had told him, if you feel alone and lonely, sing this song, and a friend may come and help you. So he began to sing, Way on a way on a way on a Way hey. on a way on a way on a Way hey. on a way on a And as he sang that song, he thought he could hear voices joining in from the other side of that stone. And then suddenly, the stone was rolled away. He crawled out, blinking in the light, and saw people all around that clearing looking at him, people of all sizes and shapes. He blinked again and realized they were animals all looking at him. And an old grandmother woodchuck came up and poked him in the knee and said, Grandson, we heard your song. Do you need help? The boy said, I do indeed. My uncle put me in that cave, and I have no parents, so I have no family. That old grandmother woodchuck said, Grandson, choose any of us. We'll be your family. You can decide for yourself. Well, the boy looked around, and seeing all those animals, did not know how to choose. So he said, Could you each tell me what your life is like? So I would know if I could do a good job. So the first one that came up was a little mole. Little mole said to be a mole. We burrow in the ground and we eat the most delicious worms. And the little boy thought about that. He really didn't want to eat worms, but he also wanted to be polite. So he said to that little tiny mole, oh, my friend, I would not be a good mole. Look at my fingers. They're so weak. I can't really dig holes the way you do. I would be terrible at your family's job. Now the next to come forward was the beaver. The beaver said, you would love to be a beaver. We swim underwater and we eat the Mm, best that's the tree bark at all. Mm, oh wonderful tree bark. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Again, the boy thought about eating tree bark. Not something very appetizing, but he remembered to be polite. He said, Beaver, look at my teeth. They're too weak to, to cut down trees, and I can't swim underwater the way you can. I would be a terrible beaver. Now, one by one, many animals came forward. None of them seemed right until the old mother bear walked forward and said, mm, my boy. You would love to be a bear. We take our time going through the woods. We eat delicious honey and berries, and we sleep in a warm cave together, and my two cubs here will wrestle and play with you any time you want. And the boy said, I'll be a bear. And indeed, he became a member of their family. He traveled with them everywhere, and life indeed was good being a bear. And he wrestled and played with his new brothers all the time. But every time they scratched him, Hair grew on his body till by the end of the summer he looked like a bear himself. Now, as they went along and the autumn came, each day they heard different hunters, all of them not good enough to catch a bear. Until the old mother bear said, Oh, it's two legs and four legs. This one is a good one. We must run. And they began to run, pursued by two legs and four legs. Behind them they could hear the sound of getting closer and closer until they came to a clearing where an old tree had fallen over, a hollow tree. The mother bear said, Crawl in here, we may be safe. They crawled into that hollow log and waited. They heard the sound of whoop and then silence outside. And suddenly smoke began to come into that log, and the boy remembered that that was how hunters would hunt for some animals, if an animal took Shelter inside a hollow tree, a fire would be built, and smoke would be blown in to make that animal come out. And he also remembered he used to be a human being and could speak in human words. And so he called out, Stop! Stop! And the smoke stopped coming into the log. He crawled out, and there in front of him, he saw his uncle and his uncle's dog. His uncle took one step toward him and touched him, and all the hair fell off his body, and he looked like a human being again. And the uncle said, My nephew, is it you? I thought I thought you were dead when I came back to free you from that cave, for I realized my mind had been twisted, and I'd done a wrong thing, and I came back, and the stone was rolled away, and there were animal footprints everywhere. I thought they'd eaten you. And the boy said, No, uncle, they did not eat me. They adopted me. And if you wish me to live again as a human being, then you have to accept the bears as your family too. And the uncle agreed. And so it was that from that time on, those who were connected to the bear, the people of the bear clan, as well as all of our people, remembered the lesson that day, that all of us must keep in our hearts the same love and caring for our children, as you'll find in the heart of a mother bear. And that is how that story goes.
0: Mm, It's lovely. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, you don't mess with a mama bear, right? (laughs) I love that sentiment.
6: It's a good story about motherhood because mother bears, whether they're human or not, you don't mess with them.
0: Joe Bruchak is a musician, storyteller, and member of the Nohegan Abenaki Nation. Joe, thank you so much for telling us all these wonderful
6: stories which means thank you or good returning to you and also which means may your journey be good
2: I feel really inspired by all these stories, and I just want to look for more ways to connect with other species. I know, Jenny. What's nice is it's a
4: good little positive feedback loop. The more you become aware of nature, the more you become attuned to it. Like when I had this class where I had to take note of every single animal
0: encounter I had, suddenly I was noticing bird calls everywhere I went. Right. You just have to put in a little bit of effort to connect with nature. But once you do, what a rewarding
2: experience it can be. I know. This really makes me want to spend some more time outside. Mm, Yeah, I really want to go to the Galapagos now. Ooh, take me with you. I know. Let's do a Living on Earth reporting trip to the Galapagos.
4: Yeah. (laughs) a Good idea. But until then, let's look for connections with animals a little closer to home, like
0: woodchucks, rabbits, and the dogs
4: who walk beside us.
0: Right. As we've learned in the last hour, those connections can bring just as much joy to our lives.
2: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablo, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mock, Jake Rigo, Casey Troost, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show.
4: Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org,
0: Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Crowitt is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. I'm Jenny Doring. And
4: I'm Ainsie O'Neill. Thanks for listening.
1: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment.